G'day and welcome to Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer. On the show today, we'll have analysis of the Helsinki summit between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. Now, the US president provoked shock and alarm when he said that he believes Putin's claim that Russia did not interfere in the 2016 presidential election against the evidence of his own intelligence agencies. Of course, he's since retracted his statement, but many commentators have called his behaviour treasonous. My guest, Professor Stephen Cohen, says Trump was simply doing what he had to do. Plus, the former Prime Minister Tony Abbott, he'll join me to prepare us for the end of American preeminence in our region. But first, Helsinki. It's been called a summit like no other. Donald Trump provoked shock and alarm by choosing to believe President Putin's denial that Moscow interfered in the 2016 US presidential election rather than the evidence of his own intelligence agencies. Now, of course, he's backtracked and changed position since, but the president has also attracted the ire, especially of the Washington press, by heaping blame on his own country for the deterioration in relations between the two sides. Perhaps not surprisingly, the response has been overwhelmingly hostile. In front of the whole world, the President of the United States chose Russia. What the President did, side with our number one enemy, who is attacking the United States daily in a variety of ways, and belittling, kneecapping our allies, is just appalling and demands some kind of explanation. Today has shaken me to my core. And I don't think I need to point out that at 54, there's not a lot of core left. <laughs> it's a nice suit. It gives me the illusion of core. Yeah, it's a nice one. Before we get into whether our president is the Siberian candidate, I would like... This was the primary objective of Vladimir Putin was to sow permanent instability in American society and political culture so that we're so busy fighting each other, we don't have time to take him on as a threat. The president's comments made us look as a nation more like a pushover. We did not negotiate from a position of strength. We acted from a position of weakness. Meanwhile, accusations of Russian interference in the 2016 election and claims of the Trump campaign's collusion in the effort, well, they're growing. Well, to hear a different view, let's hear from Stephen Cohen. He's Professor Emeritus of Russian Studies at Princeton and New York University and contributing editor at The Nation, America's leading left-wing journal of opinion. Steve, welcome back to Between the Lines. I can't talk to you, Tom, because having listened to those voices, I realize I'm under attack from the Russians and I have to go and hide. <laughs> well, listen, several media outlets, it's not just CNN, but the Washington Post, the New York Times, among others, they've suggested this week that Trump has shown in Helsinki that he's a traitor. Was his behavior treasonous? No. He did what he had to do. He, he did what every... This is the 75th year, by the way, Tom, of the first American Russian-Soviet Soviet, uh, uh, summit when Franklin Delano Roosevelt traveled to Tehran in 1943 to meet with Stalin. Um, and every president since Roosevelt uh, has met with a Kremlin leader, some multiple times. Ever since Eisenhower, the underlying overriding purpose was to avoid war between the two nuclear superpowers. So Trump had no choice. 
uh, relations between the United States and Russia today are as dangerous as they have ever been. I want to say that clearly. I would include the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. Uh, relations are fraught with war from Ukraine and the Baltic region to Syria. So Trump needed to go. And he needed to talk to President Vladimir Putin and say, in so many words, because Trump uses a certain language, uh, look, uh, we're eyeball to eyeball. This is dangerous. How can we cooperate? Because we know Trump thinks rightly it would be great to cooperate with Russia to de-escalate, to make us both safe. And then we could talk about some other things we can do. That's what he did. That's what he had to do. By all appearances, he did it with dignity. And they reached certain agreements. I wish there would have been others. Maybe they were. We don't get told everything about summits for a week or so. And as a result, uh, almost in a single voice, because everybody else is afraid here to speak up, Trump is being denounced by the mainstream bipartisan media political establishment in the United States to quote the words of the former head of the CIA as Treasonous. Okay, but look, this is treasonous traitor. Okay, this is a Republican congressman and a former CIA officer, Will Hurd. He tweeted shortly after that summit press conference, quote, I've seen Russian intelligence manipulate many people over my professional career, and I never would have thought the US president would become one of the ones played by old KGB hands. He knows nothing about Russia. He knows nothing about Russian intelligence. He knows nothing about Putin. And my guess is he knows nothing about Trump. This is a line. It is unfortunately not a partisan line. It's a bipartisan line. Republicans, Democrats, they don't matter anymore, except that the Democrats appear to want to take this issue to the country in the uh, <clears throat> House, uh, the, the congressional elections in uh, November. But you've got to understand what's happening, to, uh, Tom. And this is why this Russiagate narrative itself has become the number one threat to my security, to Australian security, to international security. Is Trump, I didn't vote for him, I'd do it differently, but he did what he had to do, what I wanted him to do, and I think anybody who cares about nuclear security wanted him to do. Now, explaining why these people are doing what they're doing is a completely different story. What about the recent indictments of those 12 Russian intelligence operatives over interference in the election? Because many Democrats and some Republicans believe that Trump should never have even gone to Helsinki for this summit in light of all of those indictments. Well, the indictments were an attempt to sabotage the summit. We've seen this before. I wrote an article many, many years ago called Cold War Mysteries. I started with Eisenhower. You won't remember. You're too young, Tom, but maybe you heard about it. <clears throat> Eisenhower was the creator of the first modern detente. He was scheduled to meet Khrushchev in Paris uh, in 1960. He told his people, do not fly the spy planes over Russia. Those were called U-2s. Somebody flew them. They were shot down, and that was the end of that summit. We've had several episodes. Uh, I foresaw several weeks of that, uh, in advance. I didn't know it would be indictments. I thought it would be more of the Skripal affair out of, out of the UK. But this is what the enemies of detente do. They yeah, try but, to prevent it. But, but we have a special prosecution now. He hasn't released his findings. Just say, for argument's sake, Robert Mueller does find evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and the Kremlin in 2016. Would you change your mind then? i tell you what I think, Tom. I mean, we're going in a different direction. Uh, but I, I think Mueller, 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 and his adherents have given up on collusion, which means conspiracy. And they're now want to indict for meddling. 
meddling in our elections. Now, in my lifetime, which is pretty long, and if you want to talk about this, we can, I can't remember a presidential election uh, that the Russians didn't meddle in, and I can't remember a major domestic Russian uh, political event that the United States didn't meddle in. That's what Cold War has been about since it began in the late 40s. We meddle. And, in, and, and indeed, the post-Cold War era, we've talked before on this program about the 1996 yeah. election when the Clinton campaign helped Boris Yeltsin's re-election campaign, correct? That wasn't meddling. That was rigging, Tom. Let's <laughs> let's call things by, well, you chuckle, but it's all yeah. well known and we boast well, on Time it. Time Magazine had a cover it. story on it, didn't it? Right, right. And you could approve of that or not. The Clinton administration was desperate. Yeltsin was 7% in the polls, being outrun by the communist con- candidate, who probably would have been better for Russia at that time, but that's a separate issue. They were desperate to keep Yeltsin in power. What did they do? They took a firm with a bunch of people like Paul Manafort, so-called electoral experts. They parked him in a Russian hotel called the Presidential Hotel for months, and they ran Yeltsin's campaign. Meanwhile, Clinton got the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, to give Yeltsin, I can't remember if it was $4 billion or $5 billion or what it was, loan, so Yeltsin could pay pensions because the pensioners weren't going to vote for Yeltsin. So, you know, the attempt was to save Yeltsin and... Even though there's some evidence that Yeltsin actually didn't win, uh, that's more than meddling. That's rigging, Tom. Meddling, you know, I used to, I lived in Soviet Russia uh, in the late 70s and early 80s, and the way you heard the Western meddling was called shortwave. Every major Western power had its shortwave station in Russian. And sometimes it was jammed, sometimes it wasn't. And I bought a very good German shortwave radio, and I listened to it in Moscow at night. And it was editorializing about internal Soviet affairs. Is that meddling? I didn't think it was meddling at the time. We called it propaganda. But this has been going on ever since Adam and Eve developed adherence. It's silly. It's silly, but it's reckless silly. It's dangerous. My guest is Professor Stephen Cohen. He's one of America's leading historians on Russia. Well, there's no question that anti-Russian sentiment is growing, not just in Washington, but across the Western world. Let's listen to this exchange on ABC's PM program. It's Linda Mottram interviewing a Republican strategist, Rick Wilson. I mean, it is astonishing, though, isn't it? Because, you know, at this point, NATO is looking to America at a moment when Russia is looming uh, and some of the allies in NATO are very afraid, in the Baltics, for example, of, of a potential invasion. And yet NATO looks across to America and it can't see how it's going to be able to rely on this ally. Is that not enough to embolden some of the, the stronger heads in the Republican Party in Congress? No, it's not. And, and at this point, Russian tanks could roll through the Fulda Gap and into Germany uh, and they could they they could be at the English Channel before Donald Trump would sit up and say, "I have to do something." That was the ABC's Linda Mottram with Republican strategist Rick Wilson, Steve Cohen. Well, I hope he'll never be my strategist because I'm not quite sure what geographical route the Russians are going to follow to get to the English Channel. We've been told for months. <clears throat> which is also not true, that the Russians are th- threatening the tiny Baltic states of uh, Latvia, Lithu- Lithuania, and Estonia. Now we're told it's the English Channel. Uh, what did they do? See the movie Dunkirk and decide that's what they want? I mean, this is fantasy, but it's reckless, dangerous fantasy. And you mentioned Russophobia. I have a dim memory of the McCarthy years. I was a kid. 
I don't remember, and I've read some books about it, that there was this kind of Russophobia in America even then, because it was about communists, not about Russia. But we're getting leading political intelligence, cultural figures in America saying about Russia today essentially racial things. Uh, that Russians, Russians are conniving and they can't be trusted. This is something, it's always been there, but it's never reached the level of the bipartisan political policy establishment. And the reason it worries me is that after Trump and Putin are gone, it may still be here. Well, let's go back to that exchange between Linda Mottram and that Republican strategist. I mean, there is something to be said. There are conservatives and Republicans, and obviously Trump, who take a more benign view about Russia. And a lot's been made about this role reversal within the Republican Party. But do you find it unusual that so many American liberals, that is, Americans on the political and ideological left, they're now on the same side as senior US intelligence officials, members of the military-industrial complex, all those neoconservatives who champion the Iraq invasion. In other words, on national security, the American left is to the right of Trump and many Republicans. What does that tell you? All right, so it's a, it's a good question, and we have to be analytical, and we have to recall a couple things that I think are relevant. The opposite of what's going on today, crazed Cold War, was in the 20th century called detente. We had three major episodes, we, I mean the Americans, with Soviet Russia. All were led by Republican presidents, first Eisenhower, then Richard Nixon, and then, to the great surprise of many, Ronald Reagan, who thought his detente with Gorbachev was so great that he and Gorbachev had ended the Cold War. Uh, I think they were wrong, but maybe they did briefly. During that period, there was a very strong faction of the Democratic Party called the Scoop Jackson faction. He was a senator. They were ideologically hardline against the Soviet Union to the point that, that they were avid uh, proponents of building more and more nuclear weapons, weapons and against detente. So this wing or tendency or inclination has long been in the liberal wing of the Democratic Party. What Trump did to their standard bearer, and it wasn't just, keep in mind, Tom, wasn't just Hillary Clinton, because she really represented Bill Clinton's two terms in, in the presidency, and to a certain extent, Obama. She represented what liberals thought was their great triumph in America. When she was beaten by the worst Republican candidate since Alf Landon, it was more than a shock. It was what classifies as a kind of profound disillusionment in themselves. And what they've done since then is attempt to explain it away. And it's grown. So we're now in a situation that these people are saying, literally, I heard somebody say today, Putin is going to fix our off-year November congressional elections. In other words, they're delegitimizing democratic elections in America. How many candidates who are defeated in November are going to say Putin defeated him? 
not going to say I read, I, my, my candidate, my opponent was stronger. I ran an unwise campaign. I should have done things differently. No, they're going to say the Russians did it. And what does that mean for democratic election, elections? These people are invalidating the idea of a democratic election, all based on a myth uh, in the United States. That's what's dangerous. Yeah, and so what you're saying here is what we're witnessing is neo-McCarthyism on the left. On steroids, I'd say. Steve, your voice is a marginalised one in the US and indeed across the Western world. It's always important to hear counter-arguments to the prevailing conventional wisdom. Thanks so much for being on ABC Radio again. Keep your head down, Tom. <laughs> Stephen Cohen, Professor Emeritus of Russian Studies at Princeton and New York University. Well, now for a different view on Helsinki and the broader Russian threat, let's hear from Tony Abbott. The former Prime Minister was recently in Washington where he delivered a keynote address to the Heritage Foundation. That's one of the world's most influential conservative think tanks. The Wall Street Journal editorial page reprinted extracts from the address under the headline, An Ally Sizes Up Donald Trump. (laughs) Tony Abbott, welcome back to Between the Lines. Look, Tom, it's wonderful to be with you. Before we address your recent Heritage Lecture, let's get your thoughts on the recent summit. Mm. Many US Democrats and Republicans believe Trump should not have even met with Putin Mm. at at, at Helsinki, especially in light of those 12 indictments. Was he wrong to do so? No, he wasn't wrong to meet uh, Putin because, let's face it, the world's two biggest nuclear powers do need to have a dialogue. My problem was uh, the gushing over Putin. Uh, Let's face it, uh, when the leader of the free world meets a ruthless dictator, it should not be all smiles. Even yesterday, when he was doing a bit of damage control, uh, President Trump said he had a good meeting with NATO and an even better meeting with Putin. Well, NATO are America's allies. Putin is, to some extent, at least America's adversary. And I think you've got to treat your allies better than your adversaries. Why do you think a US president initially chose to believe his Russian former KGB counterpart than his own intelligence agencies? Very, very good question, uh, to which uh, I have no answer. Uh, I just find it uh, a little mystifying. I'm not anti-Trump. I think Trump has done quite a lot of uh, good. I think he's he's done it in the face of uh, ferocious opposition by the serried ranks of political correctness. I think he's done uh, a lot more good than harm, but I don't think the meeting with Putin was his finest hour. Some of your critics would say that Russia, far from being an expansionist and dangerous threat, has all things considered been defensive, that its interventions are in response to misguided Western policy? You know, you think of NATO expansion right into Russia's traditional sphere of influence or supporting regime change in Syria, which only helped fuel those Islamist jihadists. What's your response to the realist foreign policy critique? Tom, is Russia a a massive existential threat to the United States? Uh, Possibly not. Is Russia a big threat to the independent countries on its periphery? Yes, it is. Look at the way Russia annexed the Crimea. Look at the way Russia has fomented uh, a a separatist movement uh, inside the Ukraine. Uh, Look at the problems that the Baltic states uh, have uh, with Russia and uh, look at the way uh, the Poles are uh, busily rearming against the Russians. uh, And who can blame them? So, look... Uh, Is Russia a force for good in the world? 
No, I don't believe it is. Um, is uh, Russia the biggest threat that the United States faces? Um, I suspect not. And that's not to mention the downing of the Malaysian airline plane in the Ukrainian mm. skies. And, and, yep. and Tom, this is, as far as Australia is concerned, Putin will always have blood in his hands. Mm. Well, as PM, you slammed his response. And, Absolutely. And Look, shirt front him and all that. Yep. But are we any closer to finding out the culprits and holding them to account, Tony? Sadly, uh, I, I don't think we're closer to holding them to account. Uh, I do think we have a pretty good idea of what happened. A Russian missile battery went uh, from inside Russia into the eastern Ukraine, down the aircraft, and then went back into Russia. Now, Russian missile batteries don't just wander across borders by accident. Uh, Russian missile batteries wander across borders because uh, that kind of activity has been authorised from the very top. So uh, uh, while I don't say President Putin uh, pulled the trigger... Uh, he certainly allowed a situation to happen where uh, a Russian missile battery uh, uh, was responsible for an atrocity in which 298 innocent people were killed, including 38 innocent Australians. And uh, my view is that you should not be able to kill Australians with impunity, and I deeply regret that there have not been more adverse consequences. My guest is former Prime Minister Tony Abbott. Now, let's turn to your address last week to the Heritage Foundation. You say a new age is coming and the American legions are returning home, but where's your evidence that there's any US retreat in the Asia-Pacific under Trump? Oh, I think if you... Uh uh, we're listening to the president's press conference after his meeting with the North Korean dictator, uh, and there was the sudden, quite uh, out of the blue, cancellation of military exercises, long planned military exercises with the South Koreans, which the president referred to as war games, mm. and then complained about their cost and said how provocative they were. Uh, uh, clearly, uh, under Trump, um, there is this impulse uh, to bring the boys home. Now, I can certainly understand that. Um, no one wants to bear the burdens of freedom, uh, as the United States has uh, for 70-odd years now. I mean, America hasn't quite done it on its own. Uh, allies like uh, Britain and Australia have helped. Um, in Britain's case, uh, there's been an abundance of help. But, but... There is no doubt that uh, the burdens of the defence of the West have been primarily borne by the United States and uh, the cost in blood and treasure has been horrendous and you can understand the weariness that the Americans at every level now have. And the point I made in, in, in Washington is that uh, quite the opposite of John F. Kennedy... Um, the message from Trump is that we will not bear any burden. We will not mm. pay any price. Uh, we will not defend any friend in the uh, preservation and furtherance of freedom. That's that's the strong message coming out of uh, President Trump's So the out. days of relying on Uncle Sam are over. But, I mean, was the US ever so reliable? Because uh, Canberra and Washington have disagreed in the past. Suez crisis in 56... Mm. Uh, Indonesia's annexation of West Irian in the early 60s. We yeah. had tensions over the East Timor deployment, mm. 99. I mean, isn't your call here just a recognition of reality that America can't be fully counted on when the moment of truth arrives? I, I, I think the, the 
the isolationist impulse is stronger today than it's been at any time in the last 70 years for all sorts of understandable reasons. Um, uh, and this is why it's more important than ever that Australia look to itself, not look to others for its own defence, for its own security. And, and this is why I suggested in that speech that we needed uh, to upgrade our submarine deterrent uh, much more quickly than is currently the case. Uh, we need a bigger navy and we need it um, as a matter of some urgency. And we've got to accept, I think, that we could well find ourselves uh, in future operations uh, like East Timor, only perhaps bigger, uh, where we don't have the kind of assistance that we might once have expected from the United States. And spend more than 2% of our economic output on defence? Well, I think that's, uh, that's highly likely. Uh, it's highly likely because the first duty of government is to keep its people safe. And that doesn't just mean order on the streets, it also means ensuring that we cannot be bullied by bigger countries. And there are potential bullies uh, in the world. Um, Russia obviously is bullying its near neighbours. Uh, China is very, very assertive now in our region. Uh, we've seen uh, China's tentacles uh, spreading into the Pacific. And it's important that Australia respond appropriately. Now, we don't set out to make enemies. Uh, China obviously is in many respects a friend of Australia's, but it doesn't share our values. And I think a, a world or a region dominated by China will be very different from a region dominated by the United Haven't States. Haven't we been here before? I mean, you were in high school in the late 60s and early 70s mm -hmm. when President Nixon enunciated the Guam Doctrine, you know, a formal recognition of limits, calling on US allies to do more for their own security. And at the same time, the British were withdrawing their naval presence from east of Suez. And at the time, you had a lot of high-profile ministers. They were fretting and wailing. John Gordon, Peter and Gordon Freeth, they all, they worried that we were being abandoned by our great and powerful friends. And yet the alliance with the Americans continued. Um, if, if anything, it intensified. Why is this time any different? Uh, because America's weight in the world is, is less than it was. Um, uh, America's uh, percentage of global GDP was pretty close to 50% uh, in the aftermath of the Second World War. Mm. Today, it's, uh, it's shrinking towards 20%, and this process is inevitably going to continue. So even if America wanted to, it wouldn't be as preeminent as a power uh, as it has previously been, and obviously the same is, uh, is even more true of Britain than of the United States. So the theme of your Heritage Foundation speech is more or less from an Australian perspective is that we need to be prepared to resist adversaries in our own right. Mm -hmm. Do you think this is a recognition that the, the US global leadership policies of the post-Cold War era have not worked out as well as anticipated? That the backlash against this interventionist US foreign uh, policy led to Trump? No, Tom, look, the, the American-led uh, world order, if I might use that phrase, uh, has produced the best times in history. These are the best times in history, but uh, they may well not last. Uh, and uh, if they go, we will miss them. We really will miss them. Um, because while America and Britain have made all sorts of mistakes over the years, there is a benevolence which uh, 
is very rare, uh, very rare um, when it comes to uh, global powers. Um, um, America sometimes blunders. Uh, uh, America sometimes makes mistakes. You can look at particular American interventions and say that may have been ill-advised, but uh, you can never fault their motivation. I mean, invariably, it is not for their good, but for the good of others that they have uh, that they have acted. And all credit to the United States and all credit to the United Kingdom before um, for uh, this extraordinary benevolence, which we have not seen from any other powers. Tony, great to have you back on the program. Always a pleasure to talk, Tom. Former Prime Minister Tony Abbott, and we'll put on our website a copy of the Wall Street Journal article by Tony Abbott. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Between the Lines. It's always great to have your company. Now, remember, if you missed anything, you can find all our interviews on the RN website. Just go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer. Hope you can tune in again next week. <laughs>